Today's special episode is sponsored by ourselves, Kevin and Eli. We're launching a new course for product managers to learn more about SEO. We expect that this course will be extremely popular and sell out. To get on the wait list or to learn more, just email us at course at contrarianmarketingpodcast.com. So we're really excited to have the great Alan Weiss here with us. Alan, I consider your books the Bible. Well, actually, you wrote a book called The Million Dollar Consultant's Bible. That was one of the last books I read of yours. And after I read that book, I reached out to you to thank you for writing that book. And you responded and invited me to your mastermind and invited me to be a part of your coaching cohort. And I was privileged to learn from you as you, as I told you how much you changed my consulting, just having like you, who I look up to as the icon in this space, give me advice and give me feedback and guide me on doing this. It really changed everything. So as a part of your mastermind, we had this dinner where we went out and you had this like, ask me anything. And lots of people asked amazing questions. I think I asked a practical question about how not to get fired, which I don't think I've ever mastered, but not, it would keep asking you that. So I'm going to pass this over to Kevin to start with an ask me anything. Well, Eli, I'd rather you keep going. I like listening to you. Yeah, but you're the guest. Yeah, but you stick with things. I like that. Oh, I, we'll, we'll sprinkle good things and praise all throughout. All right, Kevin, what do you got? So here's my question. You're, an, you're super popular. You're an open book. But what do most people not know about you? Well, probably several things. One is the fact that I have flown a B-24 heavy bomber from World War II. I have flown the Goodyear blimp. I mean, flown it. I've flown a Navy World War II aircraft carrier trainer. And I don't have a pilot's license. I think most people don't know that I have a 40 by 40 Lionel train setup, which has appeared in several magazines, bought all the stuff I couldn't afford as a kid. Nobody could ever get me. And I think, I mean, I will admit this here. I don't know if I've ever admitted this on an interview, but off up here to my left, I have a very advanced US stamp collection, which I started when I was 10 years old and it's gotten quite sophisticated. But there you have it. I'll say one more thing here. Right here, I collect a lot of things. And so here you see two rocks. This one says Nantucket, I think. And this one says Palm Beach. And wherever I go in the world, I collect a rock. And I, I write on it, you know, where it's from and so forth. And they're all over my den here. And every once in a while in the morning when I come in here, I say to all the rocks, you know, none of you would know each other without me. And so. <laughs> <laughs> a, a true connector. I am. Curious as a follow-up question, what does collecting mean to you? Is that just making the most out of your experience, your time, or is there, is there a different motivation? I like the feeling of having superficial knowledge of a lot of things. Like my wife says, I can talk to anyone about anything. But I mean, if you're a nuclear physicist, it's going to be a pretty shallow conversation, but I can talk. However, there are some things that I like to get into, short of there being work. You know, so with the stamp collection, when I was 40, I said, I have to work on my collection. And I said, work. And I put it away until I was 50. Uh, I just didn't work on it for 10 years because I don't like work with pleasure. But I do like to collect things. I like the continuity of it. You know, in a crazy life where things intervene all the time in your world, I know wherever I go, I'm going to collect my rock because there's never going to be a rock shortage, you know? And so, so these things give me pleasure. And, but the key here is success, not perfection. So when I go run the trains over there, you know, I, I own a house that I rent out, but I've kept the carriage house so we can put the trains in. I have crashes and derailings and an occasional fire, but that's where real railroads are. So I don't obsess about it, you know, like success, not perfection. Well, why don't we pivot into, the, into what you consider consulting success? Because I, I think you are the epitome of your, your work is not your life. I know in your book, you talk about how you even ended up being a solo consultant. So why do you do what you do? Or why did you do what you do when you became a consultant and, and you know, the way you approach success and family? Well, you know, I learned consulting by accident because I, I left Prudential when I got out of undergraduate school and I was recruited by a consulting firm in Princeton. And I, I found when I first got there, I said, I can never, ever do this. I mean, there was a guy who was training new employees. I said, I, I could never do this kind of train. Oh my God. And, you know, here I am today. What I like about consulting and, and it's, and it's, it's partners, you know, coaching and training and facilitating and advising and all that. What I like about it is you see tangible and effective results. So in the corporate world, when I was, I was consulting for 10 or 15 years with 
you know, the best of the best Fortune 500 companies, I was able to create change because I was like a mammal among the dinosaurs. You know, I was fast and agile in and out. I wasn't McKinsey or Booz Allen or any of these giants. But then when Million Dollar Consulting hit, which was my fourth book, and suddenly I had a retail crowd coming after me, individuals, you know, like you folks, for example, then I could really affect change quickly, you know, as Eli would probably attest. I mean, you could have a conversation, somebody applies it the next day, three days later, they say, this worked and this didn't, then you adjust. And just like an annuity that gets better and better, you know, annualized sales, you get annualized learning and people learn how to learn. That's tremendously rewarding. And you call those Alanisms, right? I have Alanisms. In fact, as we speak on my private blog, which is alanandthegang.com, I'm running 100 Alanisms over 100 days. I'm up right now to 76. And every day an Alanism goes up there. So I'm trying to capture them in one place. So here's my favorite. You wrote, you know, I always have this book right next to me. You see my notes here. So here's my favorite. The difference between decision-making and problem-solving Problem solving is the search for a cause. If it was known, you would know what decision you have to make. Yeah. That just blew my mind away. Do you want to comment on that real quick? Well, I'll tell you two things that are very important. I mean, these are part of critical thinking skills, which I am adept at, right? One of my therapists said to me, you've created a set of pipes that only you can play. But the thing is, when most people search to, let's say, eliminate a problem, what they really do is they look for blame in that cause. And even if you find blame, you know, Harry didn't pull the switch, just finding blame doesn't make the problem go away. But most people walk away and say, okay, it was Harry. The second thing, though, that's really important is that you cannot remove a problem unless you know the cause. You have to remove the cause of the problem, otherwise you're dealing with symptoms. So I don't care how well your sprinkler system of fire extinguishers or escape plans work, you still have a fire. But if you have no smoking signs, then you're eliminating a possible cause of fire. And so this is a very simple fact, not simplistic, but simple, yet it's ignored daily. And so I tell organizations or people, you know, it's like saying, it hurts when I do this, stop doing that. I tell them these simple things and I collect big bucks. Well, what I think is the most amazing about you, Alan, and, and I promised I would keep saying these things, is that you have systems and frameworks around consulting itself. So most consultants, they have systems and frameworks about around what they do and they want to be geniuses at what they do, but you have both. You have these systems and frameworks about how to be a good consultant. Mm. So what's the, you know, value-based pricing night? That's one that I love and, I, you know, Kevin loves and many good consultants use. But what are some other systems and frameworks that you really like that, that are the most important and that's something any new consultant should do? Well, I'll give you a perfect answer to that because this is as simple as you can get and as powerful as you can get. It's not about what you do. It's about what you create. And if you look at most consultants and coaches and so forth, they're talking about, we conduct focus groups, we have an excellent background in change management, yada, yada, yada. But nobody buys a drill to have a drill. They buy a drill because they need a hole. And so if you're going to promote yourself, you need to promote what you create for a client. Now, I, I really believe in social proof very much. So if you look at a dentist, and a dentist has a, a picture of his or her office, and it shows new equipment and the staff and all this kind of stuff that says, you know, I'm pretty classy. Yeah, but it's the dentist who shows patients with great smiles, who really is talking about what I create. So it's what you create for your potential client or customer that's important. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. So social proof is not just the work, is not just the clients. I think many consultants, they like to put the logos of their clients, but it's also the work they've done. Social proof is the work they've done, but even more than that, because the work they've done is too much like sort of a testimonial. It's looking at things in the environment that prove your point that are neutral. Most people you're talking to will recognize something. That's why I mentioned the train disaster. Most people will recognize something in the news that they can relate to. And you say, that is proof of what I'm talking about here. And, and that's very powerful. And it doesn't require an investment. It just requires knowledge. It requires the, the mastery of language. And Eli you, know, Eli, you know that progression is language controls discussion, which control relationships, which control business. And so language is everything. And if you want to reframe something or you want to reverse the, the momentum of a discussion, it's language that does it. Alan, I, one thing that I've been wondering, wondering about the whole time, what do you think you're the best in the world at? And if you don't mind me asking the, the counter question, what do you think you're the worst in the world at? Okay. Well, you know, I, I did something about a year or so ago called Beyond Thought Leadership. Every year I did a thought leadership conference, I got bored. So I did Beyond Thought Leadership. 
And I brought in six of my all-stars from five different countries. And then I brought in a group of 12 or 15 people who paid a lot of money to listen to me interview them. And I, and I was the last one interviewed. One of the questions I, I received was, look, do you consider yourself a thought leader? I said, yeah. And then he asked, well, why don't you consider yourself a genius? And I said, because genius has to be bestowed. You don't call yourself a genius. You call yourself a thought leader, but you know, not a genius. So I think that's a key differential here. Now, with, what was the second part of your question, Kevin, there? It was the, the reverse. Why do you think you're the yeah, worst? So here's what I'm really great at. I am superb at speaking and writing. And I believe that you grow by building on strengths, not by correcting weaknesses. So when I was fired in 85, I, you know, I'm sitting out here with 250,000 consultants in the country. So, well, how do I differentiate myself? How do I market myself? I wrote and I spoke. I wrote and I spoke. I wrote and I spoke. So what am I doing today? I'm reading, I'm writing and speaking, writing and speaking. Now, I'll tell you what I'm absolutely worst at. I wanted to learn to play a musical instrument. I went to Johnson O'Connor in New York, which tests everything. It's just memory, spatial relationships, all stuff. And, you know, I knocked some things out of the chart, off the chart. But when it came to musical ability, I said, what instrument do you think I should play after all the testing? And she said to me, we don't even think you should play the radio. That's a true story. <laughs> and I... You know, I can touch type very rapidly, but I cannot play a musical instrument. I took piano lessons once, but I intellectualize everything in, in, in music. You have to have an affinity for music, right? And so about the fourth or fifth session, the piano, piano teacher says, we're done. So what do you mean we're done? I can't play anything. She says, it's, it's not going to happen. And I said, well, you know, is it, is it a question of money? Because that's my Bentley up there. She said, you don't have enough money. <laughs> That's great. I want to want to follow up with an, an answer I know, but I want you to say it, which is I was surprised when I asked you how long it took you to write your books and you explained your process. So I think many consultants and I always have this problem. So like I, I recently started a newsletter and I never started a newsletter because like I wanted a perfect newsletter, but I think you epitomize just do it. And I don't think you obsessed over it. And I want you to hear how you wrote your books and how much time you spent editing on. I know the answer, but I want to hear you say it. Well, you know, once or twice a year, I run something called a book sprint, six, eight, 10 people. And in 60 days, we created an entire book proposal in 60 days. And we have an 80% hit rate with publishing, you know, with publishers or agents. But the way I write a book is this, you know, I submit a, a traditionally, I submit a book proposal, but now I don't have to anymore, really. I submit a really outline. But the publisher says, okay, we like this book. And you get a six-month time frame. That's what they do because of their brochures and their print runs and everything else. You get six months. And so uh, I turn it in in four months, but I write it in two months. And I write it by segmenting it. And so I do 20 double-spaced pages a chapter. I, ch I generally do 10 chapters. That's a 200-page double-spaced book. And if I have five subpoints in a chapter, each subpoint is about four pages. Uh, and I can write four pages in about 30 minutes. And so if you multiply that out, actually, if somebody paid me, and I'm going to say $250,000, I could write a book, a complete 200-page book in a 40-hour week. No overtime. That's how I do it. If somebody can only write 30 words a minute, not 60, even if it's the quality is the same, it's going to take them twice as long. And I tend to write from my head to the screen. So I might have an outline or a table of contents. But the thing about People say, you know, well, you're counting and your book total, because Million Dollar Consulting is in its 30-something year, and, and last year I, we published the sixth edition, McGraw-Hill. But the thing is, when I write value-based fees or getting started consulting or Million Dollar Consulting successive editions, they're new books, because I'm not looking at the old book and revising a few words. I'm writing head to screen an entirely new book. So if you read the fourth edition of Million Dollar Consulting, you don't know what's in the sixth edition. And editing? How much time do you spend revisiting edit. and editing? I don't edit. I mean, I run it through a, you know, a typo thing. People take so long in what they do because they self-edit. And they self-edit because they have low self-esteem. And so you cannot self-edit. You know, I've never been in a position where there are four key points in selling. And then I say, well, maybe it should be three, maybe it should be seven. No, no. Whatever I come up with, I come up with. You know, the publisher never changes uh, stuff I do. I mean, I, I don't get edited by the publisher except, you know, for some grammar rules and things like that. I mean, I've published 23 million words or so. And I still don't know the difference between that and which, and I'm not interested. So just to make sure the listener knows, so Alan writes very quickly and doesn't edit, but now talk about how many copies of these books you sold in the New York Times bestseller, like you, this works and it's successful. 
Oh yeah, I mean, million dollar consulting alone is a, a way over a hundred thousand, and so you know, I've got about sixty books in fifteen languages. Uh, you know, and my first book came out in nineteen eighty eighty eight, the innovation formula, and you know, four or five of my books have been on five or six curricula at major universities. So you know, it's not chopped liver. What's a book that you think has not yet been written, but that the world needs? You know, I'm tempted to say what the world needs is a book that is the most popular selling book of all time, which was the Bible, because do unto others is really the secret of how we might resolve a lot of these issues today. But having said that, I think the book that needs to be written is something about being willing to address tangible issues in front of us and not existential issues way ahead of us. My example is this, my social proof, if you will. We're spending a lot of money and time on climate change. Right now, there are wildfires in eastern Canada, and they had to just about shut down New York City the other day. But of course, now it's connected to climate change in different wind directions and everything else. Well, it's a big damn fire. What do you expect? But we're not willing to look out the window and down the block at an eroding public school system across the United States with rare exception. That is that way for two reasons. Number one, it's because it's funded wrong. It's funded on local property tax, which means poorer communities with less expensive real estate will have less money to spend. And secondly, because it's not run for the customer, which is the student. It's run for the teachers' unions. And we refuse to look at that because the unions provide a pile of money for the Democratic Party, primarily for that party, and because it's too painful to think about maybe paying a little more money to educate our kids. You know, we've probably spent more money on veterinary services than we do looking at our kids. So I think the book that you're talking about needs to get accountability to people. You know, you hear these things or you read letters to the editor. It's big business. It's big pharma. It's Wall Street. It's politicians. It's conspiracies around the corner. But who votes for these people? Who buys the products of these companies? Who invests in these companies? We do. So you want to change it, change it. But, you know, in the last election, what, 40 million people who were registered didn't vote. That's more than the population of most countries. I think that's a good segue into what we really want to hear from you is whatever anybody talks about right now is AI. So is AI going to solve this problem? Is AI going to write books better? Is AI going to solve consulting? I don't know if you have any thoughts and if you've even heard this is happening. Well, look, people kid me about being sort of anti-technology, but I use about 20% of the technology that I need to to 100% of its effectiveness, right? And so on the computer I'm on right now and the computer behind me and so forth, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm not going to use I don't edit videos and things. But man, I can use it for reading and, and, and for writing and for speaking extraordinarily well. The issue is this. AI can augment the human condition. But it's not, does it represent a magic bullet, some kind of magic pill that's going to vastly improve the human condition and take, account to, and take the responsibility for doing things correctly away from us, right? Now, I'm a simple guy. My wife and I recently have been in Adelaide, Australia, and London, and Paris. We just came back from a weekend in New York. And wherever we go, we use Uber. Uber. And the ability to schedule Uber in advance, I think, is a technological breakthrough equivalent to fluoride in the water. I mean, this is marvelous, right? So we're in New York. There's a thunderstorm in New York City, right? We normally forget about it. You can't get any kind of transit. There's the Uber driver right on time waiting outside where we're having lunch. So this is great stuff. Now, in Rhode Island here, believe it or not, there is one, the second largest prosciutto company in the country. You know, prosciutto is delicious Italian hemp. And these things have to be cured over the course of a year or two. Well, they invested a billion dollars and they made it fully automated with AI. And so they have robots which take 70, you know, 70 foot high piles of these hams and move them from room to room on a schedule because they have to be cured in different conditions. And their temperature is taken in the whole business. And they, they run around and they do this, these things. But then they have smart robots. And these cut the prosciutto when it's ready. And only the most delicate cutting is left for the human. So we're getting this tour. And these robots are six feet tall. You know, the arms and swords and everything. I said, what if they hit somebody? And they said, no, no, they're programmed. If anything's in their vicinity, they back off. And at that moment, a woman in our party screamed because a robot bumped into her. So... I, I think that's an issue. Now, let me go, uh, Eli, beyond your question to where I really want to go, which is GPT. Chat GPT. 
right now, universities across the country are going back to an ancient tradition of oral exams. You know, it's like my oral defense when I got my PhD, right? Because they were getting all these chat GPT dissertations and term papers and test results. And, and of course, you know, the way technology moves, you can technologically test whether these were technologically produced. I think chat GPT is great for things like these convoluted directions you get with equipment. I think it's great for, you know, travel directions. I think it's great for legal boilerplate. All that's good. But this is not going to going to replace, you know, human creativity or human thought. I ran the Gettysburg Address through it. And instead of four score and seven years ago, chat GPT says 87 years ago. I mean, I, you know, Lincoln's rolling in his grave with this. I put the first line, the first paragraph of Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath through it. And where Steinbeck was talking about a rain that came in the dust bowl and barely scarred the earth, chat GPT turned it into a rain that revived the earth and so forth. I guess it's not aware of Great Depression. And then I put the first paragraphs of the consulting Bible in it, my book. And so in this book, I start with this parable about the first consultant who is a prehistoric guy who came out of the jungle, met another guy trying to make an arrowhead and pointed out to him that he needed a, a, a hard stone against a soft stone to create, but you couldn't use two soft stones together. And as a result, the guy who made the, the arrow gave him something to wear around his neck and some food. And I said, then the first consultant was born. Well, ChatGPT said, two men meeting in the jungle held a transaction where one helped the other and received payment. <laughs> so I just don't consider this a big threat to humanity. So your process of writing books in 40 hours is still far better than AI content. I can outwrite AI any time. Now, as I recall, when IBM came out with that computer, I think it was Watson, it actually beat the chess champion, the grandmaster or whoever it was. And that was a shockeroo. But that's a series of logical moves. It's a, just a series of thinking ahead. Now, I played pretty strong chess, but I, only, I can only think about six moves ahead. These guys think 20, 25 moves ahead, right? Queen's Gambit, I think it was called. But if you're talking about emotionalism, if you're talking about creativity and writing, that's not XOXOXO1212. That's not a branching system. That involves creativity. And so that's a different kettle of fish. So chat G the thing about ChatGPT that bothers me isn't the nature of technology, isn't the fact that it's not perfect. You know, I remember when they did Young Frankenstein and they taught Frankenstein to dance. And Frankenstein, the monster, lost step, and people in the audience started throwing vegetables at him because he wasn't dancing perfectly. And I think it was Samuel Johnson, uh, the, the great wit, talking about a dancing dog. And he said, it's not that the dog dances imperfectly, it's that he dances at all. And so ChatGPT is very impressive to me, except what's not impressive are the people who are looking at it as something that's going to take over the universe. You know, if you want a vanilla universe, then you have it. I don't want a vanilla universe. Yeah, I'm I'm all with you. And while we're you know talking about writing and reading, I'm curious, what does your, if you will, information diet look like these days? What do you consume? What do you read? What do you watch to to learn and educate yourself? Oh God, well I'm a voracious reader, and I read eclectically. The the thing I read the least of are business books because business books really bore me. You know, I'll read Dan Pink, I'll read Jonah Berger. I mean, these guys are good. I've read almost everything that Peter Drucker wrote. But most business books are just boring. And most self-help books, unfortunately, start with the philosophy that the reader is somehow damaged and needs remedial help. But I read biographies. I read history. I read a lot of fiction. I read science fiction. Everything and anything I can that has appeal for me. Like I just got a book on the last British airship. Now, we know what happens to it. This thing crashes on its maiden run terribly. But why it crashed and the decisions that were made and the issues that were missed and the egos involved, that fascinates me. And the reason I like to read some of these great fiction writers is when I was taking creative writing in Rutgers, the professor said, listen, pick a writer and read his or her oeuvre, read everything they've written. So I just picked Steinbeck and Updike and reading all their work. I mean, I read Updike right until, Steinbeck was already dead, of course, but I read Updike up until the time he died, all of his stuff. You know, more recently, I've read John Irving's stuff, but I think that when you're when you read someone consistently, you learn this in fiction: to write good dialogue, you have to know how your characters think, and that's an interesting dynamic. Okay, so I'm not good at fiction. I've tried it; and I'm not good at it because 
you know, I can write business out of my head without thinking about it, but fiction requires story arcs and a lot of a lot of thinking about the characters. And it, you know, Irving might write a book every two or three years. Dan Pink told me, you know, he writes a book about every two years. He's like me; he goes to Nantucket and sort of puts a seatbelt on and writes. So, but I don't have that kind of time. I don't want to spend that kind of time. That's fair. It's, it's also like you know, like like fiction writing is similar to playing music. <laughs> like you're, you know, you're most interested in in like yeah. you know actual. I don't dance well either. I mean, we could create a whole list here. <laughs> but when you read, I'm very curious what that looks like. Because, you know, like, I'm curious, do you take marginalia? Do you write in your books? Do you take notes? Or do you soak it up and then you synthesize it later on? I very seldom take notes. But what I do is this. The reason I have such a huge vocabulary, and I do, is that whenever I see a word that I don't know, I find that personally offensive. And so I either make a note, I have pads, wherever I am, I have small pads like this, uh, in my cars, every place. I make a note of the word and I look it up later and then I use it. Well, I'll rip it out and, you know, if, you know I'll rip it out if indeed it's, I own what, I own the magazine to the book. And I keep a file of these and I've been doing this for 25 years. Now I used to do this, you know, once or twice a week and now I might do it once a month, but it's, it's a great exercise. I do that. But otherwise... I'll write a note about something, and if the next day it's appealing to me, then I know I've got something. If the next day I say to myself, why did I do that? I throw it out. Now, I'm going to give you an example of something. Margaret Wheatley wrote a book called Leadership in the New Science, I don't know, 20 years ago. Interestingly enough, I invited her to speak at one of my thought leadership conferences, and she's, she's a contemporary of mine. I mean, we had the same clients, and we knew the same people, but she's a terrible pessimist. She's a sort of a failed activist. And she's terribly pessimistic, frightening, frighteningly, frighteningly cynical. However, in this book, which was an average book, she writes this line. She says, consciousness is a factor of processing information. Consequently, a dog has higher consciousness than a snail because a dog can process more information. With that, I put the book down and I had an epiphany immediately. And the epiphany was this. That means that people who process information faster and better than others have a higher level of consciousness. And that immediately explained a great deal to me. And so I started to build that in heuristically to what I do. And so that one germ of an idea, which the next day made as much sense to me, if not more sense than the day before, made the whole book worthwhile. So occasionally I'll see something like that. Uh, and I will take it and run with it because it's so important. And as I did just now, I, I gave her credit for the original concept, but she hadn't thought about it so much in terms of people, I don't think. Wow. I want to talk about IP and thought leadership in just a moment, but one quick question that is important to me. So it seems like you have this really strong skill of looking things up you don't know yet. And my theory is you have done the same thing in your consulting career where like this is how you became the million dollar consultant. You like you, when you did something and you didn't understand it, you you figured it out and you learned it until you knew it and you you build on that. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, it is. I mean, let me give you one of my Alanisms here to show you what exemplify what you're talking about. There's past, present, and future. Okay, very complicated, right? And I've trademarked that, so I own that past, present, future. Nobody else can use it. But we look at the past with memory, and memory isn't always accurate. We look around in the present using our perceptions, and our perceptions differ from person to person given our background and experiences. And we look to the future with imagination, and we're weakest at that, really weakest at imagination. And so when we're learning and when we're trying to understand how things relate, I like to look at it in that regard. In other words, is this improving some memory I have and making it more accurate? Is it sharpening my perception so I'm seeing things in color and not just black and white? And or is it improving my ability to imagine what might happen in the future? Because in my profession, like yours, I need to make predictions. Am I answering your question, Kevin? You are. You are. Very well. And so I like that. So a lot of what you've written is informed by your experiences. And what you've written has really changed the way many, many consultants have approached what they do. So value-based pricing. The whole concept of being a solo consultant, like how did you come up with these ideas? Like you talk about it in the book about how you wanted to get, I think you wanted to get an executive assistant and your wife said you couldn't get an executive assistant until you had some clients and you never got employees and you used 
I don't think you calculated that you basically paid for your kids to go to college based on the amount of money you saved. So what are some other things like that helped you come up with like value-based pricing? Like, did you get ripped off or like those kinds of things? Like what are those experiences that informed your best practices? Well, you have a good memory, but that was about having an office a little bit different. When I was fired, I said, I have to get an office. My wife said, why? And I said, well, I need an office. She said, clients aren't going to come to you. You're going to go to clients. I mean, this is before remote work altogether. So I'll tell you what, if you find out you need an office, get one. And I found out later after 20 years that not having an office and, a, and rent or, or a mortgage or employees or insurance or all that kind of stuff saved me $450,000, which was exactly what it cost to put both my kids through private school from, from at that time, from kindergarten through undergraduate school. So, you know, that was an important lesson. But you know, let me talk more directly to your point. Let's say value-based fees, which you've mentioned. When I was fired in 85, I said to myself, okay, what, what am I going to do this? And I, I made two decisions that saved my life. I mean, I made some poor decisions along the way, but these two decisions saved my life. One was, this is a relationship business. And consequently, I have to sell myself first before I sell anything else. And that's led to my subsequent discussions on establishing trust before you try to get conceptual agreement or a proposal or anything else. The second thing was, because of my experience with these other firms, I was not going to charge by a person in a seat, by a time unit, by a box of materials. I found that degrading, demeaning, and, and not something to talk to an executive about. You talk to human resources about that, but human resources are like a vestigial appendage. You know, they're useless. And so consequently, I decided I would charge by value. And I put together computation, sort of a, 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 an approach, which turned out to be easy as hell because I said to myself, how am I going to know the value? And then I said, who knows the value? Oh, the client, the buyer knows the value. I'm going to get it from the buyer. And that's what I did. And so that premise was born somewhere in the 90s and sort of revolutionized, I think, pricing in the consulting profession. You know, I had a, a CEO client in Connecticut, a CEO of an insurance company, and he lived in Manhattan. He was at a gym, you know, one of these high-end gyms, and he looks at a guy on a treadmill nearby and he's reading a book and his gym bag says McKinsey and Company. So the guy gets up to go to the bathroom and my CEO client runs over there. So look at the book. It's Million Dollar Consultant. We pause this special podcast episode to remind you to email course at contrarianmarketingpodcast.com if you want to get on the wait list for our upcoming course on SEO for product managers. I, I know I've heard this. I think definitely in the book and definitely in the podcast where you say you want to, it to be known as get me Alan Weiss the same way people say get me McKinsey. That's right. You know, branding, which is what you're talking about. You know, the best brand is your name. And the fact is that once you have a brand, you know, what is a brand? People think, well, it's a uniform representation of quality or some kind of academic, you know, de definition. A brand is how people think about you when you're not around. And because we're all independent and, and lone wolves, really, I mean, even boutique firm owners, you need people to think about you when you're not around. And that's what a brand will do. So we're in a tough economic time. A lot of people have lost their jobs and there aren't other jobs to go and grab afterwards. So they want to be consultants as a way of earning income. Many of them will probably not be successful at it. So first off, and I'll let Kevin ask the follow-up question on this, but what makes a good consultant versus a great consultant? Well, I think the, I want to give you two answers. I think the first answer to what you said is they're going to be successful or not, not based upon their, their expertise, but based upon their ability to market. It's the marketing business. And you know, of the thousands of people I've coached, I'll stipulate that 99% of them are really good at what they did, but not all of them were good at marketing. Nobody takes marketing on their way to an MBA or if they're working in a large company, generally don't get it. And some people actually regard sales and marketing as dirty somehow, as an adversarial contest. They're never going to make it. So that's number one. But what makes a great consultant are several things. If you talk about how effective you are with the client, what you create. One is you have to have original IP, original intellectual capital. and that doesn't mean it has to be brand new. You can take something as old as the hills, but you have to apply it to contemporary times. And that means you have to look at the economy, you have to look at social mores, you have to look at technology, you have to look at demogra demographics and say, how does this apply to contemporary times? And you create something around that. The second thing is you have to be resilient as hell. You know, we're all going to have setbacks and you have to learn from the setback and bounce forward, not back. And so resilience is important. And number three is you have to live with high degrees of ambiguity because these are volatile and disruptive times. I have trademarked the term no normal because we're not returning to normal. There's not going to be a new normal. Normal means typical. That's its definition. Who wants to return to typical? 
So we have new realities we have to face, and we have to live in the ambiguity of constantly changing times. And the final thing I'd point out in this, this little group is you have to have a very well-developed sense of humor because a sense of humor gives you perspective and it alleviates stress. And if you are stressed or guilty or you have fear, it masks talent and none of us can afford that. So you have to expiate guilt, you have to get over your fears, and you have to be able to laugh at yourself first. And if you can do that, um, you'll be a very con successful consultant because most people want to be around people like that. So can any of that be learned? I mean, that last one on humor, can I don't know that people can necessarily learn it. So if they're not, if they don't have that charisma, if they don't have the ability to be optimistic, they don't have the ability to tell a joke, does that mean they can't be successful as a consultant? Well, it's not about telling jokes. It's about recognizing humor in things that happen around you. So for example, you know, I took people to see this Broadway show called The, the Play That Goes Wrong. My wife and I saw it twice. It was absolutely hysterical. And I took a group of, I don't know, 20 people to see it, a, a session I was doing on, in New York. And as I looked around, 18 of them were rolling on the floor laughing, and two of them were just stoic. And so there was no hope for those two. But there is hope for people to develop a sense of humor in that they have to be exposed to humor, real humor. And the more exposed they are to it, the more they might tend to appreciate it. And my, my litmus test is this. There's a guy named Carl Hyacinth who writes very funny novels, largely about Florida. He wrote The Razor Girl. He wrote Maximum Bob and books like this. And as soon as Hyacinth has a book out, I get it. Because, I, I mean, he's roll on the floor funny. And if you can read Carl Hyacinth and not laugh, then you really have a problem. Your, your humor's been surgically removed. You know what I mean? You can learn to laugh if you get exposed to the right plays, the right movies, the right books, and the right friends. I think you epitomized, I'm sure you've read a Carol Dreck's Growth Mindset. No, I haven't. So Carol Dreck says she's a Stanford professor and she wrote this book that I, I think Bill Gates promotes called Having a Growth Mindset. And then it's a term that everyone has stolen, but really she's a psychology professor of like how you could approach the world from a, a growth standpoint and you not be rigid, but be flexible. And I think you epitomize that, you know, in my time with you, it, well, you coached me, like I would ask you questions where I thought I knew the answer, but you were able to reform it into something else where you could turn a no into a yes. And I think you absolutely epitomize that with all of the, you know, from what I've read in your books and from, you know, working with you, how you can look at something as it's a negative. Someone doesn't want to hire you. And I think in your books, you talk about times where people want to fire you and you're able to pivot that into upselling. So what's it, what's an example of that, that, you know, our listeners might learn from? All right. So here's an example, uh, Eli. I'm sitting down with a guy who I was introduced to and he, he says to me, He's the CEO of a company. He says, I'm seeing you out of courtesy because, you know, John recommended you. But he says, let me tell you right now, before we start, this company has never, ever hired an outside consultant, and I'm not about to break that habit. And I said to him, that is really interesting because you won't believe how many people who are my best customers right now started the conversation the same way. And so that's called reframing. And I took what he thought was a separate picture he was in and indicated to him he was in a picture with a lot of other bright people. That's how, that I call that the martial arts of language, and that's how you reverse things. And my most generic form of this is somebody says, you've never worked in our industry. It's exactly why you need me. You're 3,000 miles away. It's exactly why you need me. You don't have the background. That's exactly why you need me. It doesn't matter. That's what I say. Because then you get two seconds of stunned silence. And once you have two seconds of stunned silence, now you control the conversation. Language, discussion, relationship, business. Alan, if you were to start out today as a consultant, how would you approach it? Just tell me one thing, Kevin. Am I right out of school or coming out of business or what? You have spent five to 10 years working at a company and decided you want to start your own business as a consultant. Okay, but it wasn't a consulting firm, right? Correct. It was not a consulting firm. Or All maybe, right. maybe you know, make it more appropriate for today's times. Like you just got laid off. You were given your notice. You have, set, you have three months of severance before the mortgage. You don't have a way to pay the mortgage. Okay. So the, the key thing is this. Nobody has ever learned to ski or ride a bike by reading a book not even my books. And so don't think of that as your, as your course. You need a coach, right? Because otherwise you'll make so many mistakes that you will eventually be crushed. So get a coach and a, let me define a coach, right? A coach is somebody who is six yards ahead of you on the skis demonstrating how to bend your knees and traverse the mountain, not somebody in the chalet drinking brandy telling you what to do the next morning when you go up there. So you want somebody who's been there and done that. No matter what you have to invest, 
because if you think investing in success is expensive, think about investing in failure. So get yourself a coach, somebody who's been there and done that. That's the most important thing. That will accelerate your progress. The second thing is get in your head that this is the marketing business and your job is to sell your value to others by demonstrating what you create for them. The litmus test here is, once I walk away from a client, how is the client's condition improved? You know what the doctors say? The doctors say, first, do no harm. Eh, I'm sorry, that's not good enough for a consult. Can you imagine after three months, I shake hands with the buyer who's paid me $200,000 and I say, look, I didn't do any harm. You're the same way you were when I started. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to be in jail after that or dead. So first, do no harm for the medical people. It's not good enough for consultants. You have to improve the client's condition demonstrably. So that's what I'd say to you. I'd say two other things. One is, well, the thing that kills consultants and in the profession would be relationship problems and money problems. And obviously, they're inextricably entwined. So you need to have six months of expenses put away for your normal lifestyle, whatever it is, six months at least. And secondly, if you have a partner, the partner has to buy into what you're doing. You cannot come home at night to someone who says, you know, maybe you should get another job. Okay, it doesn't work. So relationships and money, you got to settle that and sort that out. Obviously, there's a whole range of skill sets that you can establish yourself in these days. There's, due to the internet and technology, there's so much more. How do you think about specialization versus generalization? Do you want to be you know, like a, a specialist who might have a unique skill set in the world, or do you want to have the broadest perspective possible? Well, you have a choice here. You can generalize and thrive or specialize and die. You take your choice. You know, specialization doesn't hack it. You know, I'm a process consultant. I know processes and they are immutable. They don't change from airlines to chemical plants to newspapers. The same processes apply. And so I can work with anyone and I have in the course of my career. But if you specialize, the problem is that in effect, you're a content expert. The client might find that the competition has come out with something that changes the content or a bigger competitor has pulled a technological rug out from under you. Or some, some organization much bigger than you, you know, the McKinsey's of the world, come out with a new approach to that kind of content. So it's, it's dangerous to be in a niche because the niche can disappear. But wait, I want to ask one more point on the specialization. If you're, if you're generalizing, how do you differentiate? Whereas if you specialize, it's a little bit easier to differentiate. You differentiate based upon your value proposition. And you, you know, when I was doing corporate work, I said, I dramatically improve individual and organization results. Now, when I say that to you as the buyer, there's only one question you can possibly ask, which is, well, how do you do that? <clears throat> and then I say, well, I'll tell you what, instead of being theoretical, why don't you give me an area you'd like to see performance improve? I'll say how I work with you. And so bang, you're not in a presentation, you're in a conversation. Now, when I'm working with people individually, I tell them, I help people achieve a lifestyle and a business beyond their greatest aspirations. How do you do that? Well, let's talk about where you are right now. All right, Alan, I hope you're game for this. I prepared a couple of contrarian statements from big personalities, and I would love you to rate them on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being outstanding and one being you know, poor or not important. And feel free to comment on them if you want to, but you don't have to. Does that okay. work for you? And the sta these are contrarian statements? Yes. All right, go ahead. Cool. Okay, number one from Peter Thiel. Distribution is more important than the product. I would give that about an eight. And, but let me give you my justification. Amazon started as a bookseller and realized that their real driving force was their method of distribution. Nobody goes into McDonald's to browse. <laughs> you go into McDonald's having made a buying decision. So, so I, I, that was, that's a good one. I give that an eight. Number two from Kevin Kelly. Don't be the best, be the only one. Uh, I'm going to give that a, a six because it's a platitude. It doesn't mean anything, you know? You're not going to be, th there are eight billion people in the world. You're not going to be the only one. But what you have to be is the one who's distinguished, the one who's somewhat unique, if that's not an oxymoron. But I, I never heard people identify somebody they want to get as the only one. They, the, what they tend to say is, this person's superb. You know, you can't live without this person. Fair, fair. And it's, so there's a similar statement from a slightly different angle from Peter Thiel saying competition is for losers. Would you, would you also give that a six? Well, if, if you're in the Coliseum as a gladiator, 
competitions for a winner and a loser, depending on which way the emperor's thumb goes, up or down. So I'm not quite sure what he means by that. We're in a competitive world, and one of the problems right now is we're giving out presentation trophies instead of, instead of trophies for winners. One of the problems is that schools have done away with top 10 lists because they don't want to offend anyone. But like it or not, once you're at a school, this is a competitive world, and it's survival of the fittest. I like that. I like that. Okay, next one, Steve Jobs. People don't know what they want until you show it to them. That's why I never rely on market research. Yeah, that's an 11. And I'm going to put it in my words. What I've said forever is people know what they want, but they don't know what they need. And the distance between what they want and what they need is our value distance. And so, you know, I, I forget the year, but it had to be the late 80s. A woman calls me and says on the phone, cold call. Are you Alan Weiss? Well, okay, so far so good. Yes, I am. Do you own a Mercedes 450 SLC? So I figured it's a recall. I said, yeah. And then she says to me, th only three questions. How would you like to own one of the first car phones in New England? That took me about two seconds. And I said, how soon can you get here? And from that day until the day that smartphones you know, came into the, the, the fore, I always had a car, a, a car phone. Some were hardwired hard handsets into my dash, but I never knew I needed a car phone. I didn't want a car phone until she told me that. Our ability in consulting to ignore client wants, because if you respond to a want, you're a commodity. Yeah, I can do that for $14. Oh, well, he can do it for 12 But if you create a need, you can't be a commodity because the client wasn't looking for that. So what he said there, and, and I, loved it, I loved jobs in terms of what he did at Apple. The other parts of his life are pretty sad, but yeah, that's an 11. Okay, next one from Haruki Murakami. If you only ever read books that everybody else is reading, you can only think what everybody else is thinking. No, no, that's about it too. Because what I remember what I said about Margaret Wheatley before, you interpret a book the way you interpret it. And so if you're just reading words, digesting <laughs> words, okay, yeah, that's a flat line. But in all of my life, I've never not had a book on my bedside or, or in my briefcase or you know, on the tablet since I got out of Rutgers. But you know, I had to read so much in Rutgers, I couldn't do it. But after I got out of undergraduate school, I've never not had a book. There are thousands right now in my den and across the hall in my library. And even if I read them on my tablet, I keep the hard copy book here because I like that. I collect, right? You, you have to be able to find something in a book. I have only not finished four books in my life, only four, because there's always a germ in there you can get. There's always something that's rewarding. Sometimes you have to search for it. So I disagree with that starkly. And I also got different things out of the same book at different times. Like sometimes I reread a book and, and there's different lessons for me that I wasn't ready for when I read it at the first time. People tell me they reread some of my books because they weren't ready to learn something the first time. A lot of people come to my workshops and so forth multiple times. And when I ask them, it's because the first time or two, they want to listen to what I'm talking about. But the second or third time, they want to watch how I do it. It's interesting. Well, it also has to become relevant. Like there's, you know, the tactical books. And I know there are things like, Alan, like I, I reread parts of your books on contracts when I'm, you know, looking at a contract. It, it, when it was theoretical knowledge, I can't put into practice because I don't remember it. Fair, fair. Good one. Cool. Last one from Rory Sutherland. Too much logic makes you predictable. I, I'm going to give that a six. I, I will say this. Logic makes you think, right? But emotions make you act. And... The interesting dynamic here is that you want to get a buyer emotionally involved, and too many consultants are playing chess with the buyer. It's an intellectual game, argument, objection, overcome the objection, and you play this chess game and nothing happens. What you really want is a good game of rugby. You want some contact sport here. You want some people to yell, ouch. And so emotions make people act. Now, here's the converse, though, of understanding this dynamic. When something happens to you, that's adverse, you want to stop and think about it. Because if you allow yourself to act emotionally, you, are you will overreact. That's why road rage occurs. So it's not what happens to you, it's what you do about it, right? That's the old trope. But it's true. It's very true. So you acknowledge your emotions, and then you become intellectual, and you, you, rea you react appropriately. But in selling, you want people to start to think about what you're talking about. Then you want to find out what they per how they're personally involved in this and get an emotional response. I you can't afford to wait. You know, you can't afford not to do this now. Love it. Alan, thanks for playing. Appreciate you. 
What do I get a gift? What do I get here? <laughs> you get uh, the official contrarian marketing respect award. <laughs> you know, talk about what people don't know about me. I, I don't know how many years ago, my wife was hounding me to get on Jeopardy because I would answer all the questions at home. And so I went on Jeopardy because I had a trip to LA and I went into the, uh, <laughs> I went into the, not the, the tryouts, you know, 50 some odd people, they call your name, 12 of us are left. And they say, we'll get in touch with you. Well, they eventually did. And two years later, I was on Jeopardy. And you bring four or five suits with you because they film all five shows in one day. And I, it, I lost in the first round to a dancing waiter from Iowa. And the reason I lost isn't because he knew more than I did, but because most people don't understand, you can't click in until a light that the audience can't see at home, a light around the set goes off, or at that time, Alex Trebek was on his last syllable. If you do it before that, you're frozen out for two or three seconds, and then you're, you're gone. And this guy had better rhythm than I did. I told you I can't dance. That's a great story. I have the video. I would love to close out with a, a hot take on digital marketing and SEO. So when I, I, I think it was the consultant's Bible. You had an acronym for SEO. I can't remember what it was. It was extremely negative. It still made me reach out to you. <laughs> Maybe I, I like the challenge of wanting to change your, your mind. Right. So I'd love your updated hot take on SEO. We can expand it though to like social media and TikTok or anything, but like quick hot take on that. It's a relationship business. And so you could do all the algorithms you want. You know, I was banned from LinkedIn for a week and even LinkedIn doesn't know why. So they've got stupid algorithms, got low paid people with poor judgment. And the fact is that, I mean, SEO probably can't hurt you, but it's, it's really overhyped on how much it helps you. You have to develop a brand and you have to develop people talking about you. You know, I, I've trademarked an expression called the chain reaction of attraction. And that is if you attract people who in turn attract others, you can have a huge audience. Well, thank you very much, Alan. This is extremely enlightening and a huge honor for us to, to have you on the podcast. No, I had a great time. And alanweiss.com, if people want free video, free audio, free text, A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S.com. And thank you for having me. This has been fabulous. And I enjoyed playing the game. Thanks, Alan. And any other links you want to share? I mean, I, I can give a personal endorsement that Alan is highly approachable, yeah, an excellent coach. And as Alan said earlier, having a coach, if you are going into consulting, would be great. And Alan is the goat of consulting. So why settle for, for anything less? That's very generous. I really appreciate it. The goat. Alan, you're a true man. Thanks so much for coming on. That was fun. That shot by. That was fun. And now it's your turn. Head over to ContrarianMarketingPodcast.com and subscribe to the free weekly newsletter to get a summary of today's episode, key takeaways, and community content. And while you're there, go to today's episode and leave your opinion in the comments. We'll feature the best thoughts in the newsletter and on the podcast. Also, if you like today's episode, please feel free to leave five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, thanks so much for tuning in and here next week.